Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Ready or not? Here we go, and we're away. Welcome back to another episode of the Two Tongues Podcast. How's everybody today? I know the content's been a little bit slow coming out lately. Um, we already talked about why that is. Hopefully, we'll get back to uh, a more regular cadence uh, soon. In the meantime, I'm doing my best here to uh, to get some content out for you guys. And this isn't really what I plan to do next. I've been working on part two of that return to Edinger series that we started. Uh, really kind of two places. If you remember, Ego and Archetype. We did Ego and Archetype, which is what I'm continuing to work through. And I'm, I've got at least one, probably two episodes coming on that. But then I picked up this little Edinger gym here, which is called The Psyche in Antiquity. I'm almost through it. It's a small one, but it's just chock full of interesting stuff about psychological interpretations in ancient Greek philosophy. I mean, I don't know what more you could ask for. So we'll get into that at some point. Uh, Today, I was inspired by something I read in that Ego and Archetype book. I think I mentioned it. Um, I'm just trying to pull this up here. There was a um, picture in the book of an inscription, a stone, a carved stone inscription with a weird image on it. It looks something like a dwarf with a, with a, uh, like a dwarf from uh, Scandinavian mythology with the, with the, uh, the, the big hat that, you know, comes up to a point, the beard, um, all of these cryptic, um, inscriptions from ancient languages, just all the stuff that's right up my alley, as you guys probably can imagine. Um, and it turns out that this stone was something that, that Carl Jung had carved and placed in his retirement home, basically. And it's private, by the way. The building still belongs to Jung's family. It's not a museum or something. It's not a place where you can go visit. It's a private place. So the stone was placed there, presumably for Jung, for himself, you know. And he went through uh, great expense and effort to have it made not just the stone, but the, the house itself that he, that he built. And so I saw this picture in the book and I was like, Oh, what is that? What does that mean? And then I did a quick Google and then I got into a little bit more of the details in the book. And I was like, Oh, I got to make this an episode. So maybe it's not going to be a a super long episode. Maybe it's not going to be super in depth, but it's interesting. And I wanted to get it out there to you. So I'm going to call this episode, the Bollingen stone mystery. Sounds like a, Hardy Boys book or something. The Bollingen Stone Mystery. What does that mean? 
All right, so obviously we're going to talk about the Bollingen Stone. That's what they call this, this stone that Jung had carved in his uh, retirement home that he had built. Um, I read it like you might read, like you might, re- like Carl Jung would read somebody's dream and read into it psychologically. I read this inscriptions on the stone, and that's how my, my mind immediately begins to turn. And I don't think that is um, accidental. I think that um, that was very much what Carl Jung was about. Uh, dream interpretation and communicating with this with the unconscious and and having a dialogue with yourself um, that's what he did in the red book you remember we we did many episodes on uh, his active imagination exercises in the red book very cryptic very mysterious shit um, so this is going to be something like that that we're going to talk about and I really, I really wasn't sure how to open it up a couple things came to my mind I mean I love things like cryptic messages, secret societies, mystery religions, you know, that, that kind of thing. It revs my engine. I, it, it sparks my curiosity. Um, I'm very interested in this sort of, this sort of thing. It entertains the shit out of me. Um, why that is, is a deeper psychological question that we could get into at some point, but I'm not going to do that today. Um, but there are things that come to my mind when I think about cryptic messages, mystery religions, things like many topics we've talked about on the podcast. And one of the things that comes to my mind is that these things are not designed to be easy to understand. It's like you have to earn understanding these mysterious things. And a good example of this is the way that Jesus spoke. So we know he told stories in parables and they're like little fucking riddles that you have to you have to figure out. It's not something that's going to come to you easily. It's like a, intentionally. It's it's trying to weed out the people that aren't going to put the effort in, that aren't open-minded, that aren't really searching or questing. Um, you know, the the people that uh, already know, you know, the 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 those sorts of people. I can't tell them anything. Those people are not going to understand what Jesus was trying to say. And this is what happened with the um, with the uh, the priest that he got in trouble with, um, and he did his very best to kind of uh, tiptoe around, you know, getting himself in, in too much trouble with his words. But it was very good about the the messages being cryptic. So you know what I mean. What is Jesus trying to say when he talks about throwing the seed down and some of it falling into the good soil and some of it falling into the briars? What is he trying to say? He's not talking about agriculture, right? He's talking about something else. And um, and so this sort of thing is going to be the theme. It's going to be what I'm going to focus on today. That these deep religious messages, even the very deep and ancient philosophical wisdom you go back to Pythagoras, if you go back to Plato and Euclid and, and you know, these early pre Socratic philosophers, um, they, uh, I can't remember what, what, I think it, I can't remember what philosopher it was. Um, maybe it was Plato. can't remember. But there was an inscription above the academy uh, that said um, that, that anybody who's ignorant of, of mathematics or geometry shouldn't enter the building, shouldn't even try to learn philosophy. Because there's something deep and, and important about um, the abstractions of math and numbers, the application of that to the world, uh, you know, physics and the world around us, and biology and all that sort of thing. That there's some secret information encoded in the world. And if you don't know math, you're never going to be able to understand these mis- mysterious, 
you know, pieces of wisdom that these ancient philosophers were, were uncovering or, or promoting, that kind of a thing. You have to be ready for it, and you have to try. You have to put the effort in, or you're never going to unlock. You're never going to understand the meaning. You're never going to unlock that. So before I jump into the Bollingen Stone in particular, as I read through this stuff about the Bollingen Stone, it made me think of something else that we talked about uh, previously, the Georgia Guidestones. So I'm going to remind you, this is a pretty good parallel. We can we can try to uh, compare something like the Georgia Guidestones to the Bollingen Stone. So for those people who don't remember, the Georgia Guidestones were a monument that were erected in, I think, basically the middle of nowhere in Georgia. Um, and nobody really knows who funded it. Um, it's all very, it's always all kept very secret. So it's a very big mystery who funded it, who, you know, whose idea was this, why did they put it there? You know, nobody, nobody really knows. Um, there was an episode of, um, Brad Metzler's decoded on the history channel about this many years ago. And that was the first place I heard about it, but it came back up in, um, uh, the news because somebody not that long ago tried to destroy, I think they, they blew up, um, the monument damaged it really badly. Um, so why would somebody want to do that? So the idea with the Georgia Guidestones is some very rich person uh, or people, uh, no one knows, uh, put this thing together, um, had it erected basically in secret, and it's like in the middle of nowhere. So you might stumble upon it, and if you do, you, you can walk up to it and see that it's like this ancient Stonehenge-looking thing, giant 20-foot-tall standing granite blocks of stone, but what makes them different from Stonehenge is that they're all carved. You know, it's like these three giant stones, and they're carved um, on both sides from top to bottom. And each side is carved in a different language, and some of the languages are dead languages, ancient languages like Sumerian. And then you've got modern languages, and they all say the same thing. It's like a Rosetta Stone situation. And what do they say? This, this is going to help you understand why somebody would uh, maybe try to blow it up. It says basically a, ten, a list of ten commandments for the modern world. It says, you know, one, maintain humanity under 500 million in perpetual balance with nature. Guide reproduction wisely. Unite humanity with a living new language. Rule passion, faith, tradition, and all things with tempered reason. Protect people and nations with fair laws. Let all nations rule internally resolving external disputes in a world court. Avoid petty laws. Balance personal rights with social duties. Prize truth, beauty, and love, seeking harmony with the infinite. And then lastly, be not a cancer on the earth. Leave room for nature. So this is what it says. So you can see, you know, there's obviously some sort of religious uh, uh, components here, especially when we hear things like um, uh, the infinite, the harmony with the infinite. That's, that kind of sounds like a religious statement. The rest of it's kind of political, honestly. Um, you know, it's got an, an environmental um, uh, thread that runs through it. You know, maintain humanity under 500 million in balance with nature. Okay, so we have to kill off or manage to, you know, um, 
reduce the population significantly in order, in order to be harmonious with the infinite, in order to, to not be a cancer on the earth. You know, these, these are very uh, politically charged statements with an environmental sort of agenda. Um, so who knows? Who knows who did this or why? You know, talking about a world court and, uh, you know, a common language for the world. This is like some new world order type of stuff as well. So you can understand why somebody might have thought, Hey, let's blow this thing up. But it's weird that it was that it was erected in the first place. Weird because it was extremely expensive. It was all done in secret, no advertising, and they put it somewhere where people aren't likely to go. So what in the fuck? Now the Bollingen Stone, something like this too, right? It's it's Carl, Carl Jung's home. It's not a public place, not a place people are likely to go, and yet the message that was inscribed on the stone something seemingly very important for Jung. Why? I mean, why do we know that? Well, he went through the expense and the cost uh, of putting it there. He put a lot of time and effort into designing it and what it was going to say. Um, you know, not arbitrary, very meaningful. Um, so there's some parallels here. We'll get into something in a bit, but another parallel that comes to my mind is that the... Um, Georgia Guidestones are these three large stones with a fourth on top. And so there's basically um, f four stones involved. And there's four sides of the stone that Carl Jung is, is uh, you know, put, put there in his, in his retirement home. So there's some things we could compare and contrast between these, these two stones, but really not the purpose. I just wanted to bring this up to kind of um, set the stage a little bit and then to give you... Um, something to compare what we're going to talk about today. There's lots of things I could have showed you. And there's lots of cryptic inscriptions and, you know, undeciphered things. Uh, the Rosetta Stone is not a bad example we brought up earlier. Another some, something kind of similar here, at least to the Georgia Guidestones. Um, but enough of that. Let's talk about the Bollingen Stone here a bit. And I can't talk about that without talking about the castle itself, uh, Bollingen Tower is what they call it. Uh, for those people watching on YouTube, let me show this to you. This, this is Bollingen Tower. It's a beautiful little cottage. It's not, not exactly a castle. It's not huge, but it kind of has the look of a castle. This is in Zurich in Switzerland. Uh, beautiful, right on the lake. You know, it's a gorgeous place. So we'll come back to that in a minute. All right, so the Bollingen Tower was built in Zurich um, between 1923 and 1935. So it actually took quite a long time to construct. And as you saw in the picture, it was built with four towers. So you have this cottage, um, castle, whatever you want to call it, with these four turrets. And that's something that sticks out to me immediately. And you might wonder why. And I would say that if you read Carl Jung, one of the things you'll see is that he emphasizes a lot um, symbols, images. Um, images in myths, images in dreams, images from our unconscious. And the most important of these images is an image, it basically, essentially it's an image of God. He usually uses the word mandala to talk about it because there's a type of form where it's basically a circle with a center, but it's 
divided into four sections. So you have this, you can just imagine a circle with a cross through it. You get some idea of what a mandala looks like. Um, that word comes from Hindu, uh, Hinduism and Buddhism where they depict um, like a deity sitting or, or, or a Buddha sitting in the, in the center. And then there's different imagery in all four corners of the, uh, of the mandala. Um, so when he built his tower, he built four towers. Um, and so that division into four it brings to mind the mandala image, and I don't think that is uh, a coincidence. If you read Jung, you'll know this is something that was really fundamental and important um, in his um, philosophy and, and his psychology. So, so the towers, the four towers, I think correspond to Jung's notion of quaternity. This this division of four, and you can see that if you if you kind of close your eyes and you imagine that circle divided into four. Um, You've got four kind of equal slices, and they sort of counterbalance each other. So what you have in the quaternity is an image of completeness or wholeness, and that's what um, Jung would say, and that's why it is associated with the idea of God, something that is complete, something that is whole. So this this mandala image, uh, this quaternity, it's, it, it accompanies the image of God. Okay, we, we see it a lot in... in um, the Buddhist and Hindu world and these mandalas, but we can see it in lots of other places. And Young loves to point that out, as well as his students from, uh, you know, from religious images all over the world. So a circle divided into four, and it denotes wholeness. Okay. So Bollingen Tower was built on the shore um, of Lake Zurich, uh, or Lake in Zurich. I'm, I'm not familiar with the. Uh, Geography in Switzerland, although my family does hail from Switzerland. Um, the reason I bring up the fact that you saw a, a, a bit ago in the image, um, I'll just pull it back up here. Right on the water, right? I don't think that was an accident either. It was built right on the water because water is significant symbolically, and Young talked about this ad nauseum. Water is a deeply ancient and powerful symbol of the unconscious. Why might that be? Well, the deep water is dark, right? So the light is associated with consciousness. The darkness is associated with unconsciousness. It's also deep, right? The deep, that's associated with the unconscious as well, kind of like a, like a, like a, a bottomless pit sort of thing. But what's important about that is that you don't know what's in it. That's why the unconscious comes with fear and is associated with lots of fearful images in, in religion, the dragon of chaos, you know, the devouring mother. These images um, you know, are, are fearful images because you don't know what's there. Could be good, could be bad. I told this story many times on the podcast, but um, the only time I ever went snorkeling um, in the ocean and I, and I swam past the coral reef and it just drops off into the darkness. I've never been more terrified in my life. It was like this wave of terror for no reason. It just washed over me like it came up from the depths and swept over me. It took me a minute to get over it, just looking down and not seeing the bottom and not knowing what could be there. Right? This is the idea of the unconscious. It could hold a treasure. It could hold a demon. You don't know what's in it because that's exactly the point. You're not conscious of it. So he builds his castle on the water. Now, <clears throat> you might be forgiven for thinking this isn't intentionally symbolic at all. It's merely coincidental. 
if not for the fact that when the second story was added to the tower in 1927, after Young's wife passed away, Young acknowledged the symbolic significance of the second story expansion. He said that it was an extension of consciousness achieved in old age. Right? His second story he built represented an extension of consciousness. Okay, So even he says that the building itself is symbolic. It's not just this, though. He also, of course, erected on the grounds a carved monument with cryptic messages inscribed on it, which confirm that Young's castle is a representation or a material embodiment of his own psyche. And, of course, its connections to the archetypal psyche, which for Young is God. In this way, the stone is kind of an idol, as well as an abstract self-portrait. It represents his psyche, but also the image of God, quite literally, in stone. The Bollingen Stone, as it has become known, it was erected on Young's 75th birthday. It's a great stone cube, and it's inscribed on three sides. Okay, knowing Young's fascination with meaning and abstraction... I cannot help but to notice that 75 years represents three-fourths of the number 100. Exactly, right? The fact that exactly three-fourths of the cube bear inscriptions and that the number 100 represents a completion cannot, to my mind, be an accident. The three inscribed sides in the fourth left blank repeat the quaternity symbolism that, that we saw in the, in the castle's four towers. The uninscribed side seems to represent the yet-to-be-lived part of Jung's life, as well as the unmanifest potentiality that is the unconscious, the blank inscription, the unconscious. So I think what I'll do is I'll read these inscriptions for you. Um, for those people who are following on YouTube, let me just show you a couple images. That's just a zoomed-in picture of uh, the tower, but here you can see images of the stone itself. Inscriptions on the stone. Images, look at that one, on the stone. Really, really interesting stuff. So this is the first one I saw, and I was just like, well, I have to know what that is. I have to know what that means. All right, so I'm going to read for you, best I can, um, what actually appears on the stone, and then I'm going to do my best to do a little bit of analysis psychologically on what this might mean. Um, and if you like the podcast, you'll probably like uh, where I'm going with this. Um, side one is in Latin. Okay, Latin, of course, is a dead language, an ancient language, a language that is associated with... Um, Epic poetry, um, you know, like uh, Ovid's Metamorphosis or, or Virgil's Aeneid. Um, it's, it, you know, Marcus Aurelius. It, it's associated with the Roman Empire. It's associated with Western civilization. Um, you know, and it's got this mystique to it, Latin. I'm going to read for you the Latin, and I don't speak it, and I've never taken a Latin class, so I'm just going to give this to you for effect as best I can, and then I'll give you the translation. In Latin, it says, Hic 
lapsus, exilis, extat, pritio, quocu vilis, sepinator, astulis, amator, plus ab edactis. What does that mean in Latin? It means here stands the mean uncomely stone. Tis very cheap in price. The more it is despised by fools, the more loved by the wise. Okay. All right. Weird, right? Maybe it's more mysterious in the Latin, but when you get the translation, it has its own appeal, doesn't it? Here stands the mean, uncomely stone. And of course, if you're reading it, you're staring at a stone. And you wonder, what is this? Is this referring to this stone? Is there some symbolism surrounding stone that I should be reading into this? What is this supposed to mean? Here stands the mean, uncomely stone. Tis very cheap in price. Well, a stone, not a precious stone, but just an ordinary stone, is cheap in price. It reminds me of a biblical phrase about not, not casting pearls to the swine. So the, the pearl of great price, that's, that's a, um, a reference from Mormonism, I believe it is. But uh, in any case, um, you know, you were looking at an ordinary object. It's cheap in price. So what value could it have? And so that's the first half. The second half says it's despised by fools, but loved by the wise. Right? So then what you have to imagine is that there's something that upon first encounter seems common and not beautiful and cheap and ordinary and banal. And everybody seems to agree it's despised by fools but loved by the wise. So there's something that you might be missing, something that most people might be missing. You're throwing something valuable away, and only the wise understand the, the value that's there. Now, if you understand Jung, you understand that there's something pretty obvious that's being pointed to here, that the unconscious, that's something that is ignored, most people never have, you know, you know, any recognition of it, let alone any dialogue with it. People don't identify with it or or understand that they are themselves just just as much unconscious as they are conscious. And what that what that might mean, nobody seems to care or even ask that question. But there might be something valuable there if you're willing to look, and only the wise, only the select people, um, who do are able to uncover that treasure, right? In mythological terms, you might say, um, I'm trying to remember the exact, exact phrase that Jordan Peterson likes to likes to quote. Um, I think this is another young quote, or maybe it's from alchemy, because Young quoted a lot of the alchemists, the medieval alchemists, that what you want the most, you'll find where you're at least willing to look. And so the idea psychologically is that you have to go into the shit in order to find the, the treasure there, you have to go through the underworld. You have to go through the trials and tribulations. Um, you have to go into the dragon's den, or you're never going to save the virgin. You're never going to get the treasure. So there's something like this going on here. Here stands the mean, uncomely stone. Tis very cheap. The more it is despised by fools, the more loved by the wise. I think this is something like what Jung means, the reason why he decided to include this in it. That brings me to uh, the next inscription on side two. And this one, I'll read it for you, it goes like this. 
it's it's by the way in ancient Greek. So we have the Latin, and then this one is in ancient Greek, and it goes, "Time is a child playing like a child, playing a game, the kingdom of the child." This is Telesphoros, who roams through the dark regions of this cosmos and glows like a star out of the depths. He points the way to the gates of the sun and to the land of dreams. I mean, what connection does this have to what we just read? Seemingly nothing, but it it was intentionally put there, so there must be something we're missing. So what is going on here? Time is a child playing like a child, playing a game. The kingdom of the child. The game is the kingdom of the child. Then he says, this is the Telesphoros who roams the dark regions of this cosmos and glows like a star out of the depths. So something that roams in the dark is certainly associated with the unconscious because, of course, that is the dark but glows like a star in the depth, uh, something that glows like a star. This is what the alchemist and, and Jordan Peterson will talk about what, when the alchemists say, um, uh, when they're talking about the god Mercury, Mercurius. They'll say this, the spirit of Mercury. And that's something that glitz and glimmers like Mercury does. If you ever see the metal, the metallic liquid, how it, it's sort of fascinating to watch and it, 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 it catches your attention. Um, that sort of a thing. It represents the thing that that calls out to you, the thing that that um, attracts your attention or your interest. What is that thing? It's hard to put our finger on. It's hard to hard to imagine that that's something we're in control of. What I become interested in is something that seems to hit me out of nowhere when I bump into it. It's not something that I can control. I can't say this thing that fascinates me. I no longer want to be interested in. Good luck. Or vice versa. I can't say this terribly boring thing I want to be interested in. You can't. There's nothing you can do to make that happen. So there's a mystery here. The thing that glows like a star in the depths, the thing that brings your attention to it, that has the power of, like gravity, of pulling your consciousness to focus on it. What is that? It says he points the way to the gates of the sun and the land of dreams. He points the way to heaven and the land of dreams. This is something that is easily understood as the other realm, the unconscious realm, or the unconscious part of our existence. So time is a child. It's the Telephoros who roams in the dark. What is the Telephoros? So for those who don't know, the Telephoros apparently is a, a god that found its way into the ancient Greek world from elsewhere, maybe from the Celtic world, and it's a god that was associated with healing. Now the word Telephoros means bringer of completion. So the Telephoros is a god of healing. A god of healing that is uh, the bringer of completion. Now remember, completion, wholeness, that goes back to the mandala. That's the image of God. That's the symbol that means God, the wholeness, the completion. And that's what Telephoros' name means? That's interesting. The Telephoros is also, um, as a figure, is also uh, shown, um, depicted as a homunculus, which is another word from alchemy, but homunculus means a little man, a little person. It's like you have within you a little person, a little version of you, the invisible you, the unconscious you, you might say. Um, a good 
a good uh, uh, image f- for understanding this is this cartoon of the little angel on your shoulder that's, that's trying to keep you from doing, <laughs> doing evil deeds. The little you that sits on your shoulder, the homunculus. And this is what the Telephorus was depicted as. The bringer of completion, who's the little person that exists within you. The bringer of completion is, what did we say? God. Or at least the completion is God. And if we look at the phrases that are used here, time is a child playing like a child. Okay, this is something that reminds you of a line from an ancient philosopher, Heraclitus, that says, time is a child at play, gambling. A child's is the kingship. So this is clearly influencing Jung's uh, choice of words here. And if that sounds um, questionable to you, I would say, I, I don't see the question in it. It's very clearly related. But not only that, Heraclitus happens to have been Jung's favorite philosopher, at least certainly his favorite pre-Socratic philosopher. And if you wonder why, it's because Heraclitus believed that the source of all things, the arche, the source of all things, what the cosmos is composed of, he says it's the ever-living fire. So a lot of the philosophers thought um, that, that the world was made up of fire, earth, water, air, that kind of thing. There was four arche. To Heraclitus, there was just one, and it's called the ever-living fire. And he describes that as intelligence, but also as the, the cause of order in the cosmos. So intelligence is something we associate with our own consciousness. And the order, the order in the world, that which allows the cosmos to be possible, the balance and the harmony of the world and, and nature. And this Heraclitus connects to the logos, right? Intelligence, the logos, order, the logos. And that Greek word, of course, is significant because uh, in the Gospel of John, anyway, logos is God, the spirit of God. So, the telesphoros, the bringer of completion, is the spirit of God within us that brings healing, whatever that means. Heraclitus, a couple of quotes from Heraclitus that you might like. He says, The world, neither any God nor any man made, but it was always and is always ever-living fire. He also said, all is flux. If you remember, Heraclitus said that. So Jung is pulled from, from Heraclitus here with a little twist, hasn't he? He also um, uses a, another phrase from um, an ancient historical reference, a religious reference. When he says in the end, he points to the gates of heaven, excuse me, to the gates of the sun and the land of dreams. This I'll read to you from the Odyssey. He points the way to the gates of the sun and to the land of dreams verbatim. That's from book 24, verse 12 of the Odyssey. And that in the Odyssey, he's talking about Hermes, the god Hermes, um, in his role as psychopomp. And this is a great word uh, that I uh, uh, have shared with you guys before, but psychopomp is a word that's used to describe this supernatural um, guide that takes people into the um, other world, into, um, you know, uh, usually heaven or hell. So you can think of um, the Divine Comedy or, uh, uh, you know, even when we read um, 
uh, Sir Humphrey Davies constellations. And both of those stories, you have an angel or a spirit guide or something that takes the soul up into heaven or into hell to show them to show them you know the supernatural realities. This intermediary who's necessary to take a mortal. Uh, conscious mortal person into the immortal unconscious realm that's somebody that that they call a psychopomp and so this phrase comes from hermes leading the spirits of of uh of the slain into the other world and so here you have a connection you have that which bridges the mortal world the conscious mortal world to the unconscious immortal world and this is the Telesphoros, the Spirit of God, the Logos. And then also, it's worth noting here that this um, inscription is part of um, a great uh, an image with uh, uh, kind of a mandala image, which we saw a little bit ago. And um, there's, uh, in the four corners of it, there's symbols for um, the god, uh, the Roman god Saturn, um, Mars, Jupiter and Venus. Um, the Sun is uh, Sol, Jupiter. Um, the Ven- Venus is is uh, shown with um, uh, association with the Moon. So you have the male and the female represented with Jupiter and Venus. Um, with Mars, I think you have something like the libido. I mean, Mars was the god of war. So to me, um, that's a, a passion, a motivation, deep psychological motivation. Um, you know, the the uh, whatever it is that that that. Um, whatever spirit it is that you're filled with of rage and hatred and revenge and, um, you know, uh, desperate attempt to protect the people you love, whatever it's needed emotionally to bring someone to kill other human beings in war, that's the god Mars. That energy, that psychological energy that will motivate you to do things you never thought you would do or wanted to do to take another life. You know, an innocent person who you don't know. Whatever it is that's required, that's some, some sort of powerful psychological energy. To me, that's just one example, but it represents libido. It doesn't have to be, um, you know, psychological energy towards death and destruction. It could be other sorts of motivations, but Mars seems to represent that to me energy and then saturn of course saturn was the um it represents heaven the unconscious but also saturn was the first great father figure in the greek uh, pantheon uh, saturn um was the father of uh, uh excuse me saturn and jupiter are are often considered to be um two sides of the same of the same person, actually, but um, but you do have this sort of unconscious figure in Saturn. You have this libido symbolized by the god Mars, and then this this male and female uh, symbolism there as well in the image itself. Um, so I I think that there are psychological connections that uh, we can make from from Jungian a Jungian perspective to those gods. Um, but I'm not exactly equipped to, uh, to to do an in-depth, so I'm just going to move on to the third and the final inscription. And this one was pulled, like the others, from different sources, whether it be Heraclitus in one case or the Odyssey in one case. In this case, it comes from these alchemical, these medieval alchemical, uh, mystical sort of uh, writings. And it goes like this. This is in the quotation, by the way, is talking about the Philosopher's Stone, the alchemist's attempt to create the Philosopher's Stone. Um, And uh, the Philosopher's Stone, of course, is supposed to be that which purifies 
Um, but in particular, it's that which can purify base metals into pure gold. So this is the symbolism or imagery that goes along with the Philosopher's Stone. Whether that was ever intended to be something that actually took base metals and turned it into gold, or if it was a symbol for the transformation of your soul, the purifying of your of your soul and, and development of your psyche, that would be, of course, Jung's interpretation. Um, but it goes like this. I am an orphan alone. Nevertheless, I am found everywhere. I am one, but opposed to myself. I am youth and old man at one and the same time. I have known neither father nor mother because I had to be fetched out of the deep like a fish or fell like a white stone from heaven. In woods and mountains I roam, but I am hidden in the innermost soul of man. I am mortal for everyone, yet I am touched by the cycle of aeons. All right. I like that one the best, I think. My hair is standing up on my arms right now reading it. So clearly a very interpretable passage. What does it mean to you? So when he says, I am an orphan alone, that reminds me of... um, I think it was Aldous Huxley, I believe it was. Um, and he talked about human consciousness as being island universes. Like every every conscious being is an island universe. We don't have the ability to step into the sentience, the conscious experience of anybody else ever under any circumstances. We're stuck, locked in this island uh, that we call our body. And our mind is sort of contained, self-contained. And so when when... It, when Huxley it talks about human beings being island universes. And Jung says, I am an orphan alone. I get that. He says, nevertheless, I am found everywhere. So whatever it is that I am, maybe that's the spirit of God that we've been talking about. What, what am I at the deepest level? Jung certainly wouldn't say it's ego, which is what most of us think when we say, I am Chris. I am a father. I am Whatever I am, that's ego you're, you're describing. What you are might be something else, something deeper, something more, far more profound than that. So whatever I am is referencing here um, is something probably uh, more esoteric. So I am an orphan alone. Nevertheless, I am found everywhere. So whatever that I am is, is everywhere. Then he says, I am one. Okay, that would explain why you're alone, but it also rings back to shamanism and mysticism. The one, thinking about God as the one, is something that's of a common experience in um, tribal religions, in particular shamanism, from psychological, uh, psychedelic experience, mystical experience, and, and religious uh, ecstatic experience. Um, that this is something that people come back with and say, I am one with the universe. Everything is one. The oneness is a very mystical um, and important human experience of God. He, so he says, I am one, but opposed to myself. What could that possibly mean? Well, if, you, if you've read your young, your young or if you've listened to the podcast enough, you know there's this image of wholeness. You know, we can see it in the mandala, in the circle, but it's oftentimes called 
the Orboros in, in mythology. It's the, the serpent swallowing its own tail, the image of something that's self-created and self-contained. It has no beginning. It has no end. Uh, it's, it's an image of God, and it's complete like a circle is, like a ring is. No beginning, no end. It's complete. It's not missing anything. So I am one like the circle is one, but opposed to myself. And that makes sense in the perspective of the Ouroboros because if you remember, the Ouroboros is opposites in union. The dark and the light together. The masculine and the feminine together. The conscious and the unconscious together. It's the wholeness because it includes both sides of the opposites. So that is how you can be one and yet opposed to yourself. And the image here is something like this. What reality is is conscious and unconscious together. Whatever that means, we have no idea. It's, it's unknowable. It's a paradox. But whatever that is, that fundamental thing that's behind our logic, behind our perceptions, that undergirds everything, that's the one. And, then, and in religious stories, it, that one thing has to be separated into being. In the Bible, the, the light and the darkness are separated the earth and the waters are separated, right? Everything, the male and female are separated from each other. So the one has to be broken up to create the, the you know, the reality. And we see that myth in all sorts of places where some great primordial God I- exists as the one God, and then he gets ripped to pieces and his body becomes the cosmos, that kind of a thing. And so this, whatever this oneness is, is, is Opposites united, the conscious and the unconscious. Now, we understand ourselves to be the, a, a conscious component to reality. We understand ourselves to be conscious. And that consciousness is opposed to something. Its opposite is the unconscious. Here's the, here's the thing. We are that too. We are unconscious as much as we are conscious. We, we're not as aware of it because it's unconscious. By definition, we're not aware of it. But we have no idea how our heart beats and and how we continue to breathe. We have no idea where our ideas, our epiphanies, our interests come from. We're a mystery to ourselves. There's a huge unconscious part of our psychology and our biology. And then he says, I am a youth and old man at one and the same time. Another paradox. Opposites united. Youth and old man at one time. But of course, if you're a man... You will, and your life, be young and old. And what you are, you know, notwithstanding the arrow of time, is both of those things at once. What you are, what, what has gone through those transformations of youth and, and, and age, what you are is, is something constant throughout that process. You are both the old man and the youth. And he says, I have no, known neither father nor mother, Right? The unborn. I have known neither father or mother. What I am. right? I personally have a father and mother just as you do. But what am I talking about here? I'm talking about this individual ego experience. The spirit of life and consciousness that flows through the cosmos. And has flowed through my ancestors all the way up to me. And will flow in, has flown into my children and into the future. That thing has no mother or father. He says, why? I have no mother and father. Why? Because I had to be fetched out of the deep like a fish. 
Remember, deep represents the unconscious. The ocean, the, the, the deep, the, the, the endless ocean, the water is the unconscious. I had to be fetched out of the unconscious. And this is what Jung will say, that the unconscious is the birthplace of, the, of consciousness. And so my ego has to be fetched from this deep chasm of godhood, whatever that is. This, this deep unconscious source of consciousness, whatever that is. He said, or fell like a white stone from heaven. So either I, whatever it is that I am, my consciousness, is either reeled up from the depths of the unconscious like a fish, or it drops from heaven like a stone. Whether we're talking about the depths of the ocean or we're talking about heaven, either way we're talking about a place we really cannot go or cannot survive, a place that is unknown to us. We're talking about a representation of the unconscious. He said, in woods and mountains I roam, but I'm hidden in the innermost soul of man. So the spirit of creation, you know, the logos that, that was there on the surface of the waters in the, in the beginning in the Genesis story, whatever that is, you know, the, the tribal people of old would, would say the spirits of nature, the spirits of the woods and the mountains, you know, the, the sentient component, the divine component to reality flows in the world as it does in my own soul. He says, I am mortal for everyone, yet I am touched by this cycle of eons. I am mortal for everyone. Everyone is mortal and will die. But the thing that I am will survive my mortal death, right? That's how I am touched by the eons, because, because the source of life and consciousness in me will pass, will, will pass beyond me into the future. So I don't know. Did we crack the puzzle, the code? Did we unlock the mysteries of the Bollingen Stone? Well, we did better than not trying. We put in some of the effort, some of the work, some of the suffering. Needed to unlock some of it. So maybe I don't have a perfect understanding. But you can see how easy it is to write pages and pages and pages of possibilities of what these cryptic messages might be, what Jung's intention was here. And that brings me to my conclusion. Let's, let's consider Jung's castle as a symbol. This is, of course, how Jung saw the world of our perception. To him, all men, and perhaps all things altogether, are embodiments, incarnations of reality at the deepest level. Jung saw the archetypal psyche, or the collective unconscious, as the fundamental reality, the ever-living fire of Heraclitus. It is not only a priori, existing or pre-existing conscious experience, but also pre-existing all of material reality. It is the ultimate abstraction, which we come to know through the symbols that are inhabited by it. The living symbols, which we understand as other people and objects, as motivational forces, thoughts, words, will, action, and feeling. 
Those are living symbols. And Young called the archetypes living symbols. For Young, it was possible to learn to read the world of perception and understand it for more than what it seems to be. To understand what law of experience, what archetype is being played out in it. So it's no surprise to me that the edifice of Young's castle should be constructed symbolically in the same way as he understood life symbolically. So if I can riff for a minute, unrehearsed, spontaneously, without reflection and therefore directly from the unconscious, this is what I would say. The castle is made of stone and therefore represents matter and the elements of our experience that are material. It is the dwelling place of the body. It's, it's home, right? And so, like the body, is the residence of the soul. It is the temple of God in biblical parlance. The place where God, soul, psyche, goes to rest. Since matter is that which we are most conscious of, it represents not only the material body, but also the conscious ego. The dark, cold mountain lake that surrounds the castle is, of course, the unconscious, the deep, the place of hidden and unreachable depths, treasures, potentiality. It forever changes form, slips through your fingers, and is impossible to contain, and yet possesses crushing power. It is fearful and difficult to explore. For these reasons, it relates to the spirit, the numinous, and the source of hidden power. And this is the other side of our being, opposite the material, the soul, the self, the source and sustainer of life. What then of the Bollingen stone? What does it represent? Well, it is a mystery. It's a mysterious something in the center of the grounds. It's not hidden, but not easily approached or understood. Something like the tree of knowledge in the midst of the garden, right? It holds great promise, but does not come without sacrifice and pain. Its inscriptions are cryptic. They appear in several dead languages and so cannot be understood immediately. As it should be, right? We do not immediately understand what it means to be alive or to be human. We must live and struggle and earn this wisdom the hard way. And so it is for the meaning of the Bollingen Stone. One must desire to unlock its secrets and strive painfully to do so. One must wade through ancient references and learn their context. One must notice where Young's words intentionally and subtly diverge from their original sources. One must study the images and explore the web of associations they bring to mind. And when all is said and done, our intuition leads us to the truth. So what is that? Well, we might reformulate it as a riddle, 
using the three inscriptions that Jung left behind, maybe we could summarize it by asking something like this. The uncomely stone which the world dismisses contains a hidden healing treasure. It is hidden in the soul of man. It contains its own opposite and moves throughout the eons. What is it? What say you? Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode.